Exploring Revelation podcast today. We're trying something a little bit different on our recording end, so hopefully it it works and it sounds okay. Uh, so welcome back to the podcast, or if this is your first time uh, listening here, you're, you're catching us on the, the tenth, tenth episode. I, I'm really glad you're here. I will say that some of the things in, in this episode might make more sense if you get some context from the, the previous episodes. Um, but hey, uh, enjoy the, the ride here as we explore the, the book of Revelation together. Uh, I'm just really excited about uh, this episode. We're dealing with the, the first verses in, in chapter one. And then uh, last week we uh, looked at some uh, listener questions. At least I hope I answer those questions or perhaps spawn some, some more. Uh, but if I did spawn some more, then you should ask those questions and we'll, uh, we'll work on those. I, I wanted to move on today and get back into the book of Revelation. And I think we will. I, I do want to bring something up here. Uh, first, and, and that is to draw your attention to a a series of blog posts that were released in the the past couple of weeks. These uh, blog posts were released by Sam Waldron. They're on the Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary website. I'll try to remember to to link those in the the show notes. Uh, Sam Waldron is the academic dean of CBTS, and he's the professor of systematic theology there. I've uh, appreciated his work greatly. I've found his blog post here, something that was relevant for our discussion. Uh, that's why I'll, I'll post those. The purpose of this series of, of posts uh, by Waldron is because he sees a, a possible uh, resurgence of post-millennialism, and he's responding to guys like James White and, and Jeff Durbin, who are our current uh, post-millennialists, and they've gained quite a, a following and are influencing others in the area of, of post-millennialism. So Waldron is responding to them, and uh, we should note that Waldron is what he calls an optimistic all-millennialist, and he approaches the book of Revelation from an idealistic or spiritual approach. Now, I did an entire episode on what we call interpretive frameworks, but let me just refresh your memory here when it comes to uh, idealism. It's a method of interpreting the book of Revelation, uh, and the, the reader or the interpreter here does not look for specific or individual fulfillment of the book, but instead realizes that the book is about the, the great themes of God's triumph being played out uh, in the book. And really the greatness of this approach is that the book is, is always applicable to the reader. It would have been applicable to, the, applicable to the reader in the first century, just as it is now, because really it's not talking about history or looking for specific fulfillment, but it is talking about those great themes that are constant in whatever age that we might find ourselves in. Now, some might be tempted to align the idealist approach to uh, Christian liberalism, and it's true that, that many liberal scholars take this approach to the book of Revelation. But we should note, and I think we, we pointed this out before, that it is very compatible with a high view of Scripture, and, and certainly Waldron holds to a, a confessional and, and reformed understanding of Scripture. For instance, his view of Scripture would be laid out in the 1689 London Baptist Convention. So, 
uh, certainly not liberal, but very uh, orthodox. And anyway, I, I disagree with Waldron here on, on his approach. But let me just say that there are times in which uh, we need to take more of an idealistic approach to certain passages because that's the point of the, the text. It's, it's, it's wanting us to take that. It's wanting us to see that, that theme. Uh, this is a common way that both the, the, the preterist and the futurist uh, camps will do this from time to time if they, if they admit it and are honest. Apparently, uh, this isn't Waldron's perspective. His blog, his last blog in this series is entitled The Problem with Preterism. Now, certainly not all who fall into the post-millennial camp are preterists, but a lot of them are. James White would be, uh, Jeff Durbin would be, and, and that is uh, the reason for this series of, of blogs. And I, I actually found this last blog to be fairly interesting and I encourage you to, to go and, and check it out. And his problem with preterism is, is really simple. And that is uh, his understanding is if one is a, an orthodox preterist, that is a, a partial preterist, I think we called it before, one that believes that the second coming is yet future to us. He says, uh, by virtue of their own system, they'll naturally uh, be led into heresy. They'll be naturally led into what is full-blown hyper-preterism that says that Christ's return already happened in the, the 70 AD event. So the, the logic is pretty simple. If you say that all of these events uh, and refer to, to Christ's coming again are a, a coming in, in, in judgment uh, in 70 AD, then what about other events? Let me say that again, right? So if you say that the events here uh, refer to, to uh, the events in, in 70 AD, then what about other events? How do you know if, if something is speaking of, of a 70 AD of fulfillment or something that is yet future? Waldron says it this way. I, I do not see how orthodox preterism does not become hyper preterism. There is a hermeneutical slippery slope here. If such language and such passages may refer to the coming of Christ in AD 70, what language teaching in, is what language teaching the second coming of Christ in the New Testament cannot be explained away? Orthodox preterism is in constant danger of becoming its evil and heretical twin. End quote. I, I think that Waldron makes a point here, and, and that is that one must be careful. Uh, in fact, uh, this is how it is with a, a lot of doctrines, right? One doesn't have to lean too far over the edge before they fall off into full-blown heresy. Take the, the Trinity, for example. Uh, I, I know uh, that this is a very simple subject, and that is why so many people have tried to use illustrations to, to oversimplify it even more. Some have said that the Trinity is like, water, right? H2O. It exists in, in three forms. You have liquid, vapor, and, and solid. And, and that sounds very good, right? Three, one, it's all water, uh, but exists in three forms. Uh, that's an illustration that I learned a uh, long time ago in, in Sunday school growing up. And that isn't a, a knock on my home church. The, the people there were not uh, trying to help children understand the Trinity in a heretical way, but that's really what happened because that is called modalism. Uh, that Water, H2O, it exists uh, when it's warm enough uh, to not be a, a solid, and then it gets too warm, it's, it's a vapor. So uh, you got three forms, right? You got ice, you got 
uh, liquid and then you got vapor. Now, some believe that the Old Testament God took on the, the mode or uh, form of, of father. And in the New Testament, uh, it was Jesus, right? God takes on the, the mode of, of Jesus. And then now in, the, in this age, it's the spirit. Uh, some might say, well, I think what you're doing here is you're splitting hairs, right? And that might be the, the case, but it's, 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 a, it's a difference from one believing in the Trinity and the other actually denying it. Modalism denies the Trinity because they say that there is one God that manifests himself in, in different forms at different times, like water. Often in, in Christianity, in Christian theology, we, we find ourselves uh, between two ditches, so to speak. If we go too far one way, we're guilty of one heresy. And if we go too far the other way, we fall into another heretical ditch. Uh, another example would be how do Christians relate to the law? Well, often these days we hear some say that we're not under the law. We're under grace. Uh, we're in, in Christ. And well, that is true. What they mean by that is that they're free to live life how they fit. They live life as if there's no law. And that is what antinomianism means, against the law. Or as Paul puts it, we sin in order that grace might abound. Well, Paul says that isn't the right way to think about it. That's heretical. It's antinomianism. Or we go too far into the other direction and fall into another ditch, which is called legalism, that, try, that, that ties one's salvation to law-keeping. My, my point is simple. If we're not careful in any area, the end result is going to be heresy. If one is a, a preterist, I think that this is something that they really need to be aware of because there are those that we've talked about before, right? Guys like Ed Stevens at the International Preterist Association that have gone too far and have fallen off the edge into full-blown heresy here. They've gone too far. They've taken this, this idea, this good idea, this way of interpreting, and they've just applied it to, to everything, lock, stock, and barrel. Now, shifting gears a, a little bit here and getting back to our text and specifically uh, verse one, where we read that the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, we read that we are saying that when we read that, are, are we saying that everything on the prophetic calendar will take place soon? I think that's a, a good question. That isn't what John is saying at all here. The point that John is making is simple, and that is that this revelation of Jesus Christ that was to show his, his servants, which must soon take place. What events is he speaking of? Well, those events on the prophetic calendar that are on the horizon, that which must soon take place. Does, that, uh, does this mean that not any part of the book of Revelation will point to the second coming? Uh, I don't think so. It means that the purpose of the revelation is to point to what must come to pass in the near future. We said this before, and I'll say it again, that the book has relevance to those who were living at the time. And it's clear from the onset of the book that what is described here is coming soon from their perspective, the reader's perspective. And also, uh, it's clear that the, the history of the world is driven by divine decree. There is a, a certain amount of, of confidence that one finds there, isn't there? Now, think about this for a moment, that God, who has all of history in his hand, tells us in verse 3 again that the time is near. 
these are the first verses of, of this book. And the truth is, is repeated. And therefore, what is repeated here at the onset of this book colors the entire book that follows. Just in case we didn't get it from the start, the book of Revelation concludes in, in Revelation 22.6 by saying the same thing. These things must soon take place. And then in verse 10, he, he said this to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy in this book, for the time is near. Now, of course, the student of the Old Testament here is going to have his or her mind drawn back to Daniel chapter 12, which says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. That's Daniel 12, 4. Isn't it interesting? In one instance, the book is not to be sealed up because the time is near. In the first instance, though, the, the book is to be sealed up in Daniel because the time is, is so far off. Daniel was, was told to seal up the book because there was a considerable amount of time until it, it would be fulfilled. It, it wasn't, uh, it, it didn't need to be uh, out there now. It didn't need to be unsealed. And the question that we need to ask at this point is how long then? How long uh, was it until Daniel's prophecy was relevant? Well, Daniel wrote in about 530 BC. Now, what Daniel was talking about was a, a, the coming of a, a certain political leaders and events of the distant future. And some of those events stretched uh, so far into the future that they happened during the, the time of, of Christ and in his life. So now we could say that the delay between uh, Daniel's writing and the fulfillment was like 344 to 558 years. So 558 years uh, later, uh, Daniel's prophecies were, were relevant, or 344 years. Some of them started to come uh, to fruition. So we don't have to get into all of the, the weeds here and start getting into all of the, the prophecy. We don't have time uh, for that. Uh, if you want to do some further study there, I would challenge you to, to do that. It's very interesting. Uh, and so if one was alive during the life of Daniel and he is speaking of these things coming, one might be tempted to think that it would happen soon, that they would be a, a witness to it. Well, the Lord makes it very clear. These events are going to happen later. They're going to happen 350 to 550 years down the road. Therefore, seal up the words of this prophecy. Seal them up for now. We'll open them up later, and we'll get to them. That was the idea. Now we go back to the book of Revelation, and how long has it been since that book has been written? Well, if it was written in 70, which is a, an early dating, I, I realize that, but uh, that would be 951 years ago, using my public school math skills. Uh, I, I think that the futurist has some work to do here, right? If, if John was to seal up, it was to not seal up the words of this prophecy because the time was near, it was on the horizon, and in 2,000 years almost have passed, that's hard to swallow. But, but you might say, well, a day is a, a thousand years, and a thousand years is it's a day to the Lord. And of course, that's true. But 
what do we do with Daniel then, right? In that case, 350 years was long enough to seal it up, but 2,000 years isn't long enough to seal it up. On the other hand, I am suggesting that the time is near here means the time is near here. These statements, like I said earlier, they, they color the entire book. That's why we're spending so much time here. I think Jay Adams uh, makes the point well. He says, unlike John's, Daniel's prophecy did not constitute a contemporary message and therefore was sealed up until the times of which he wrote. In other words, John's prophecy was a contemporary message. It was a message that was on the horizon. Daniel's, on the other hand, it wasn't a contemporary message. Therefore, it was he was told to seal it up. So the bottom line is, in all of this is, is this. Be careful, right? Don't fall into heresy when you start studying the book of Revelation, when you start taking it seriously, when you get into these time frame references and you, you say, okay, now these, these color the entire book in which they do, uh, make sure that you you stop short of of heresy, and and we're going to get to some of those things as we go, and and talk about where that line is, and and how to navigate some of those uh, things, and and understand what events are still uh, future, and and the second coming, and what events are not. I mean, you know, we're going to get into to some of that stuff, and and I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. But don't fall into heresy. Don't uh, you know, take the book of Revelation seriously, uh, but also recognize that, on the other hand, near here in the book of Revelation means near. Uh, we don't have to explain that away. In fact, we shouldn't because the Bible is is very clear. Uh, near means near. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast today. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, make sure you, if you liked it, you know, give it a good review. Uh, make comments, ask questions, tell your friends. Uh, and we'll see you again next week, Lord willing.